0: Hi there. Welcome to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is JJ Mole. I will be your host for today. So, for today's episode, I, I had the chance to sit down a little bit ago for a conversation with Avi Sakapatulu and Anne Pellegrini to talk about their fabulous new book, Gender Without Identity out recently from unconscious in translation press. So before we cut to the interview itself, just briefly by way of introduction, Avi Sakapatulu is a psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City and a member of the faculty at New York University's postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. She is the author of Sexuality Beyond Consent out from the sexual culture series published by NYU Press. Ann Pellegrini is professor of performance studies and social and cultural analysis at New York University and a practicing psychoanalyst. Their books include Performance Anxieties, Staging Psychoanalysis, Staging Race, and Love the Sin: Sexual Regulation and the Limits of Religious Tolerance. So, Without further ado, here's the conversation. So I'm very excited to to be talking about this book, and I I just want to start by, you know, and I promise I I don't want to gush too much, but I just want to gush just a little bit just by saying, you know, just as a clinician personally, as someone who spends... The majority of their days sitting with patients listening talking to patients and doing that sort of complex and messy work um you know i just have to say that this book you know of the texts that i've read recently um i mean really in some ways has just been the most kind of clinically useful and I'm kind of I I'm wary of using that word exactly you know for lack of a better word you know I sort of cringe at the use of that word maybe the better better put it sort of has enlivened my practice has um given life to my practice in a different way um you know and you make very clear in the book that it's not a tech technical manual it's not a prescriptive way of working um but it that it very much emerged through and emerges through um practice and it really gave language to a set of you know kind of unformulated inklings and feelings and sensations that as a clinician um i didn't quite have the language for so i just want to start by saying that um and i think just to start i also feel like it's important to kind of clarify that i really felt the stakes of the book as i was reading it you know i think i f- i could feel the two of you grappling in real ways with the sort of material, clinical, political stakes um, of the project. And the preface actually starts with a really amazing epigraph from Hill Malatino um, about ethos and ethics. And I think it's sort of a good way to sort of frame our conversation today is sort of thinking about that word, ethics. And, you know, cause I think it's really important in the way that Melatino frames it, that it's not a set of preordained operating principles, but a set of practices, something that's grounded in the practice of care. You know, ethics aren't, they're not these things that you just sort of, that are preordained, but they are things that you do and that are done to you. And, and they emerge from and inform practices of care, praxis, solidarity, and within the context of, and I think it's important to name as you do in the book, within the context of a really just fascist, genocidal, eugenicist, as you name throughout the book, political context for trans life right now. You know, we're in the midst of a full-fledged moral panic and legislative assault on the conditions of trans life. You know, so with all that being said, I sort of want to start the conversation again with the sort of the ethical stakes of the book in mind, Um, you know, and I think by way of beginning, um, I think as I often begin these conversations, I'm sort of interested in thinking just sort of how this book came to be, you know, the conditions of its possibility, um, how the collaboration came into being, and then the book itself very sort of explicitly frames the conditions of its making. Um, And so maybe we could just sort of start start there
1: thank you jj like first of all thank you for the invitation we're really excited for this conversation with you today um and and appreciate kind of like the opportunity to go into depth into some of the ideas in the book and as you're starting us out so um elegantly from these from the epigraph i would like to perhaps read the epigraph um and, and actually, even start with the epigraph that precedes the one by Hilma Latino, which is a one from Jean Laprange, uh, who's a great inspiration for this volume. And his, his epigraph is, um, the time has come to abandon slogans and think on our own, which is from a correct a paper of his. And it's uh, it's a very Arantian quote in some way, because it, it speaks to how thinking is dangerous and to offer something new requires the danger of moving into territories that may be difficult and which may be, may generate um, directions that were not of our intention, but which we can nevertheless, um, we have to risk because we feel that what we're doing in this project is extremely urgent and politically important in the intervention we make about how to think about trans and queer life in psychoanalysis. Um, and and so I'll just jump to the quote that you were referencing from Hale Latino, which is, When I invoke the question of ethos, I'm calling attention to a very different conception of ethical behavior, that one that proceeds from ethical rules or first principles, and that features a moral agent who has maximal agency and unmitigated choice in the actions they take. An ethos emerges from an ensemble of practices. When we shift collective practice, we reconfigure ethos. Practices of care are always part of an emergent ethos because care isn't abstract, but only manifested through practice, action, labor, work, it is integral to our ways of doing, unquote. We we chose this quote because it really speaks to how um, it is, we we are not urging for ethical stances that stand at a distance from, that, that adopt preordained ways of thinking about queer and trans life, which are very prominent right now in psychoanalysis, especially in its panicked efforts to address queerness and transness, uh, but which relate to the particularity of the clinical situation. Um, and I'm sure we'll say much more about that. Um,
2: and you know, I, I think, um, also let me say one of you first, thank you so much for this conversation. We're thrilled to get to go into depth about this book, which we feel really passionately about. Um, and we do see it as part of a of a necessary and emerging conversation that needs to be happening in the face of the extraordinary, and it's not too extreme or more, genocidal attacks on trans life, the very possibility of trans life, and the ongoing attacks certainly in queer life as well. But you know, I th- I'm thinking about you know this question of an emergent of an emergent ethos, and I wonder if we can even say that gender is an emergent ethos that it, where this book is responsive to the ongoing mutation, and unfolding of genders in the world. Um, And that requires careful, indeed ethical thinking. And this is this focus actually comes out of the listening we've done as clinicians. It also I've also been a professor for now nearly 30 years. So it also comes out of listening. I've done in the classroom, it's a different kind of listening, but there's some relation. So it's it's not just about two authors who are talking to each other and our colleagues It is a larger let's say, context of listening. And we are certainly learning from not only the people who work with clinically, but the conversations happening outside the clinic, too.
1: I was just going to jump in, JJ, and say that when Anne talks about ongoing attacks, uh, we want to be clear that these ongoing attacks are not just from without psychoanalysis, but also in very particular ways happening from within psychoanalysis. It's important to understand that some of the legislative changes that are happening across the country and that are hunting queer and especially trans people, trans children, especially. So at this moment, issue from ways of thinking and in fact happen with the the explicit support of groups that include psychoanalysts in their ranks. So we have these very like not as well known, but definitely operative um, uh conflict regimes of from within psychoanalysis that are aligned with this suppression of trans life, um, including including some which are less overt but are nevertheless there, like arguing for watchful waiting, arguing for approaches that are presented as if they are innocent, to use a term from Lara Sheha's and Stephen Shehaz's work, uh, but are nevertheless quite ideological and there is a whole wave of anti-trans clinical activism that we're also trying to speak back against a range like under the incitement of returning to doing clinical work as we know it offers clinical practices that um basically amount to conversion therapy since the assumption is that there is no viable form of adult trans life that is not a failure of gender or a failure of having um gender however gender comes to accrue being treated in childhood or or in early adulthood Uh, so we we want to as we head into our arguments really differentiate ourselves from these kinds of efforts to uh, kind of animosities and antagonisms to trans life
2: i know that you had asked about you know the kind of the conditions of this book's writing and its emergence and so there is this larger political conversation conversations inside psychoanalysis and outside the kinds of listening we've been doing in the clinic. Um, and then also more immediately, you know, as we say in the preface of the book, we didn't plan to write a book. We'd actually written an article together that received a prize. The it was the first Teresius prize, which was given by the international psychoanalytic association. Um, and it was, you know, given out by the sexual and gender diversity studies committee. It was the first time they gave this award. We were really thrilled by it. Um, and one of the, I suppose um, prize one of the prizes you get as part of it. One of was the possibility of being published in the International Journal uh, of um, <clears throat> Psychoanalysis, which is the oldest actually journal within psychoanalysis, founded by Freud himself. Um, we were sort of thrilled at the idea that it would be published in the IJP, and worked for you know a solid year with two different editorial teams to re- you know revise this. We got comments from them, and at the last minute um the publication um stalled over you know sort of questions of what was in the article um it it was actually what was in the acknowledgments to the article we so you know we ourselves experienced this extraordinary blockage um which um in some sense almost exemplifies some of the forces we're talking about within psychoanalysis and outside as well Um, Avi I don't know if you want to say more about this experience
1: yeah, you know, you think that in calling it stalled, you're being um, very <laughs> it. I, I think that another way to describe it is, and kind of like very factually so, is that the paper had been accepted twice and in writing, and then the offer of publication was rescinded or rather made contingent on us removing political statements about queerness as part of the acknowledgments. And when we refused to um to kind of quote unquote clean up or tidy up or straighten out our acknowledgments, uh, it was made clear to us that our paper would not be published under these circumstances. Uh, so we we had to make a really difficult decision. The IJP has a big reach. Uh, how do you balance the question of, and this is coming up in psychoanalysis everywhere right now, do you try to work from within? and try to stay within a system that requires a certain kind of, it requires a certain kind of violence by, being, by expecting that some things get left out, um, which is the price of inclusion. So we had to make a decision about whether we would want to be included and speak to a larger audience, or whether we wanted to side with the integrity of our paper and we decided to do the latter.
2: And in deciding not to publish the paper, um, I mean, this was, I, I think it, it shocked the IJP that we would give up this, you know, like, I don't think they could possibly imagine that we would have given up this august publication on principle. Um, and, uh, and it, it, you know, that wasn't, at some level, it was an easy decision. We didn't want to sacrifice um, the, our acknowledgement. And also a section we'd added, which actually had to do with the larger context um of you know sort of 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 the language of core gender identity for example the social and political context for why this seems so important for people to work with that you know to sort of make that claim so in some sense that decision was easy but in another sense it was hard because that we really believe in these arguments we want them circulating in the world and we had to think of a different way to get them out there and it was also i I will say i think for avi me the entire experience. We've published a lot, both of us. Um, I edit a book series, so I've also been involved in helping books come out into the world. Neither of us has ever experienced this this sort of um, uh, like gaslighting. It really, it was just extraordinary what happened um, with the journal. So I think it was just, we were a bit stunned by what was unfolding as well. We're, we're experienced authors, so it's not like we're, you know, we're new to the rodeo. So and this was just um a, a, an unprecedented experience for us um, and a real just a taste, I think, of the larger currents, both within psychoanalysis and in the larger, the larger social.
1: And and while the political aspects of this suppression were very clear to us from the beginning, it became like undeniably crisp when we said um, that we will withdraw our paper or rather since it was not accepted, we could not get it in the IJP anymore since we we're unwilling to modify it Um And then what happened was really fascinating and and speaks a lot to psychoanalytic politics, which is that the committee was contacted um, and told that if our paper appeared elsewhere, the committee would be in breach. And so this this escalated from they would not publish our paper um, to our paper would have to not be published anywhere. Otherwise there would be some tension between the IJP and the committee that gave us the award. So we, we were really shocked by that. Um, And that's, that's how we ended up turning towards writing a book uh, and producing a volume that we, we didn't expect. It was an attempt to cope with the trauma and the strain of this really bizarre and really unprecedented intervention into academic freedom. Um, And in doing so, we produced something that we're actually quite proud of and feel pretty intensely about. So we're very happy with how things got turned out, even though it's not to be diminished, how we got to where we are. I think it it speaks volumes to where psychoanalysis is right now. Yeah.
2: And just because the, you know, one of the things we said is that our acknowledgments were edited. Again, this is you don't acknowledge, you don't edit people's acknowledgements. I, I it's just so strange. And um, one of the lines that was edited from our acknowledgments, we were told to take out because it was too political says the following, may future generations of queer and trans analysts and patients never encounter what many of us who are queer identified have had to. That more than anything is the vision of our work in this paper. That was one of the sentences we were told to remove. So I think that in some ways, it, and it's this really, un, it's what's is unbelievable is that our experience mimes, what we're saying people should not have to experience in the future so it's basically we are not yet in the future so this book then as we then we were very fortunate that jonathan house the founding editor of the unconscious in translation press was interested in sort of posting this volume encouraged us to act to write even more to add a second essay um and encouraged us to say things that he might even disagree with right this is this is not about an orthodox line which was fantastic so um you know if if the future felt stalled in our experience with IJP, I think one of the wonderful things about working with Jonathan and, and with Stefan Trano also at um, UIT was basically said, let's bring on the future. You know, think wildly, think widely there. You know, there is no limit on how thought can work.
0: One, I think, and that's a sort of a perfect way to sort of end this preface and that I think, you know, in the, you know, in starting this conversation and sort of thinking about the conditions of the book's production, you know, I think we were sort of talking before the interview, in fact, of sort of not wanting to risk centralizing that at the expense of um, the kinds of futures that you all are imagining and calling into being um, and the kinds of futures that trans life Itself, you know, affirms and brings into being and calls into being, um, you know. So I think it is important to sort of really think of this book, and I really see this book not simply as a, a defensive move against against that which we are of of course against, but also a kind of affirmation of um, of of life, of self theorization, of generativity. Um, so, yeah, I think that's really, really important to know.
1: Um, and JJ, and- I can add something to that, I think Please. that thank you for, for um, highlighting that because part of what we've come to understand through writing this book is that it's time for those of us who are interested in kind of like forging a future for psychoanalysis to stop investing our energies in trying to convince Uh, factions of psychoanalysis that are interested in the status quo and in preserving psychoanalysis as it is. For a very long time, we have become too embroiled in these conversations, imagining under the banner of dialogue or ongoing debate that something can change when, in fact, not everybody enters these conversations with equal curiosity or genuine um, interest in examining what else can become and for that reason we have taken the stance and we actually urge our progressive colleagues to do the same uh to do the work that we need to do and stop investing and um uh, like spending our energies in conversations that are just stalling us as a field and to just think forward so thank you for for really uh, underlining that
0: yeah Absolutely. And I think as you were just speaking again, I think this is part of the importance of really sort of clarifying your use of the word ethics, for example, which I think particularly in this moment gets bandied about in a way that has the dangerous and I think lethal um, kind of overlay of ostensible neutrality. Again, I think clarifying this use of the word ethics, which I think from anywhere from the fucking New York Times to the, the medical field to conservative governors and legislators, you know, I think this use of the word ethics as something that's ostensibly neutral and not itself politicized is incredibly dangerous. And so I think clarifying our terms of engagement is so important. Um, and so I think that's a good way to sort of start to segue into more of the sort of theoretical center of the book in a way you know you you were both just situating yourselves in relationship to to psychoanalysis as a field and i think one way to start maybe is to maybe just sort of speak briefly to um you know i think on the one hand the first thing that i'm thinking about is i, I love this language that you use in your preface that describes the importance of psychoanalysis is a field letting itself be be screwed by the exterior or things outside of itself um you know you know because i think as you clarify in the preface you know i think there's a danger um when we bring the black radical tradition black feminism queer theory trans of color critique when there's a There's a risk that you clarify in the book of that simply being imported into or subsumed by psychoanalysis rather than these things pushing and screwing. And dare I say, fucking, fucking up psychoanalysis. Um, And, and so I think I want to hold that in mind and maybe you could sort of speak a little bit to the importance of that distinction and then. Maybe one way of sort of starting our conversation too, you know, if we're thinking about psychoanalysis as a field, there's an obsession um, in a particular strain of psychoanalysis with the developmental, with the etiological, and I think one of the really important theoretical and, and, and sort of practical interventions that you're making in the book um, is sort of levying a critique against a particular kind of ideological thinking or a particular kind of developmentalism and so maybe both of you could just sort of speak briefly to that where you're intervening there what the sort of the the difference is in your orientation how you're thinking about um the ideological and why that's important to think critically about particularly in relationship to trans life
1: Uh, and do you want to take it Sure. I'm I'm going to say something first about the question of
2: the developmental. Both within psychoanalysis and outside, there's a particular version of developmentalism that prevails, namely that everybody is supposed to be born this and heterosexual. Like there's a normative that there's binary gender that will then express itself in heterosexual attraction. Right. And That's, you know, for all of the changes in sort of cultural norms to make room for people, for example, to be, you know, gay and lesbian. Nonetheless, um, some features of that remain, namely that someone is born that way. And then they and then what happens later is an expression of something that was inborn. So even if you have a gay affirmative or trans affirmative political language or psychoanalytic language, now it's no longer that someone was that we're all supposed to be born cis and all supposed to be born straight and any other outcome is a warping of that right so you your development has gone offline or awry now you could be born queer you could be born trans and then your development is in accordance with that innate however innate is measured whether is it chromosomal is it some kind of psychological disposition that's core um but in any case there's a developmentalism, which is the unfolding teleology of a life. And so there's a psychoanalytic version of that and a non-psychoanalytic version of that. The non-psychoanalytic version of that would be, let's say, born that way arguments in the political domain. Psychoanalysis uses different languages. Um, let's say with respect to gender, something something, core gender identity. And our book takes a different path. We're arguing against born that way or arguments of coreness, um, We're not trying to legislate how any individual might tell their story with respect to their sexual desire, with respect to their gender. But we, we want to offer a more complex language and way of thinking about how anyone becomes, with respect to gender, or sexuality that doesn't have to root itself in, in an innate core. So, and we want to make room at the same time thinking about how again how gender becomes how sexuality becomes i think though this volume is more about gender this becoming this development this development right that's not developmental or not developmentalist i should say that um again it can can offer the contingencies of anyone's becoming right and you know i think it's a very difficult to talk about development the developmental for non-normative genders and sexualities without a creeping developmentalism right which again becomes you must have been this way all along and or you must go in this direction the normative direction and if you didn't something went off course
1: in some ways what we're trying to do is push back against this binary that has emerged in psychoanalytic thinking um and i'm just going to say what Anne was saying but frame it a little bit differently which is that the the conservative approach has been everybody's straight and cis the progressive approach has been what Anne was describing as this developmentalism of like born this way uh, so there is this encompassing uh, which understands itself as very progressive of more identities but they too have to be rooted in some originary core um, so you see for example a lot of anxiety around clinicians who understand themselves as friendly to trans life saying okay but this child has not always identified as trans this child only started understanding their gender more complexly later in life so maybe there's something else going on and these kinds of concerns actually issue precisely from this um kind of like is becoming a really entrenched understanding of transness and queerness as having had to be there all along or else it's um, it's either pathologized or the rhetoric of it not having been there all along becomes somehow seen as transphobic. And what we wanted to do was push back against what we see almost as a blackmail, kind of like not that it's issued from any one person, but a a discursive blackmail, that the only way to be non-transphobic or non-queerphobic is to advocate for a born this way, or even if nobody says that out loud, assume a non-born, a born this way approach. What this creates, which we find to be a tremendous problem in the clinic, is that in the effort to stay away from ideological hunts for kind of like, why is this person trans? Why is this person queer? It's become very hard to allow space in the consulting room in cases where that needs to happen. And it's not always. Uh, It has to do with how it emerges in the particular diet to allow space for explorations of how somebody's gender. Came to coagulate in the ways that it is right now and to understand that these coagulations can get rearranged, dearranged, and rearranged throughout the lifetime. Um, which also opens up space to think about what is now called as transitioning If you're working with a notion of core gender identity, the, the goal of the of the clinician is to figure out what your true gender is and support that. And that's like the progressive narrative, right? Even if your gender is trans or non-binary, we support that. The problem that that builds into clinical work and where we run aground time and again, is that that means that when, as somebody's gender shapeshifts, as it might for some people, including cis people, cis-identified people, that as gender shapeshifts, the earlier iteration of gender now comes to look like it was a misread of gender. Um, so we are still very attached to gender as a static category um and it is that notion of core gender identity that we're in a way taking aim at in our book to propose a different way of thinking about gender that has much more um capacity and capaciousness in it than um than thinking about, of like a developmentalism that is an unfolding of, as as Laplange describes it, an unfolding of kind of like predetermined potentials that just awaits the right conditions to flourish. We think about flourishing in a very different way. Um,
0: Great. Um, So I think that's really, really, really helpful as a way of framing. And I think I, I want to, you know, I want to sort of swing back around to The clinic and what this means in the clinic and to a few sort of core ideas that the two of you articulate in relationship to to practice. But I think as both of you are speaking, maybe there's just one little addendum or footnote that we could just give a little bit more space to. um, Which, you know, I think as both of you are speaking, you were talking about the ways in which this book tries to intervene in or levy a particular critique against gender as a sort of core ontological truth as something that is this sort of static ontological core, um, and I think in in the third in the I or I think it's the third chapter of the book actually where you sort of talk about um, you levy a certain critique against this sort of the and. The, the prefix cis, in fact, and the ways that it gets deployed or gets used, which I think is related in a way to this core critique around the kind of supposed ontological unity of gender as a as a phenomenon, as a thing. And so I wonder if we could just sort of dilate a little bit or spend a little bit of time on, on the stickiness of that prefix of cis and how you unpack that in the book.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the things we we do want to stress is that, you know, one we're making in this book the argument that all gender becomes, um, and often, and I'm sure we'll talk about this um, becomes sometimes in relation to trauma, right? We're not just saying that trans or queer genders may have some relationship to trauma, right? But all gender potentially has a relationship to trauma um, and all gender also is a becoming and unfolding right that's the first thing to say so the arguments we're making in the book also apply to what has come to be called cisgender and I stress what has come to be called cisgender because the term cisgender is a neologism dating to around 1994 and initially cisgender was actually a provocation it was a term to mark the unmarked of, you know, somehow gender, people who are normatively gendered just had gender, right, as opposed to these non-normatively gendered folks who were trans or maybe genderqueer. Right. So cisgender arises as a term to describe people who are normatively gendered as, you know, sort of where there's somehow a presumed match between maleness and and masculinity, for example. Um, So cisgender was initially a kind of political term. And it then comes to start being used about a decade later or so as a term of identity, for in some sense to show allyship with trans people. Yes, I too have an identity. I have. I'm cisgender. So we're also pushing against the notion of cisgender as core in this book, and we're we wanting we also wanting to call into attention that that cisgender has changed in meaning so quickly because this is pretty fast also shows the ongoing mutation of the very language we use to describe gendered experience and mutation in language that also affects experience itself. I mean, there's a really interesting reflexivity between the kinds of between culture. And gendered experience, and this to say that is to think also with with Laplanche, one of the leading sort of intellectual sources and clinical sources for for thinking in this in this book, right? That the in the mythosymbolic, the kinds of languages we have available, the cultural patterns, the cultural myths, inform how we then come come to describe our own experience. And cisgender is now a term out there for some people to describe and name their own experience
1: in a way that it wouldn't have been available, and you know, just you know. Two decades ago, in in some um, respects, our focus is drawing on Laplanche's theory in fleshing out how gender is always allocentric. Um, kind of like this is kind of like a word that comes from his interventions in psychoanalysis, which argue for a way in which processes of becoming are always spawned in response to the other's intervention into us, the others. Kind of like the intervention of the other sexual unconscious, and and what Laplanche means by that is that he starts with a premise that there is no before to a subject, that kind of like there's no authentic self that this intervention interrupts. That therefore, therefore, the subject then has to work to try and fix to return s- to some originary true authentic self. Um, for example, as for example, um, kind of like I'm thinking of Stoller's early theories that. Um, boys who present, boys assign, uh, children assigned male at birth who present um, with kind of like a femininity that was entirely incomprehensible to analysts at the time could be understood as having been infected by that femininity by an overly close attachment to the mother, a difficulty separating from the mother, which installed into psychoanalytic thinking In, quote unquote, the effort to understand gender complexity, under that banner, it installs a way of approaching, uh, for example, feminine boyhoods or something that might eventually turn into transness, we don't know until later, Um, a a way of thinking where the other's intervention distorts an originary sense of gender, which is understood as always already cis, and the for, for many, many years we've been sitting with patients um and having conversations with colleagues talking about the limits of that model, which are quite considerable um, in the clinical and therapeutic domain, precisely because we see that traumatic experience can and does have the capacity to spin gender or rather subjects spin their gender in different directions in response to traumatic experience in the effort to treat trauma and by treat i don't mean fix but treat in the sense of it is a treatment of something um and so we push back against the category of cisness conceptually not to suggest that um subjects who come in and identify as cis or trans that the clinician needs to initiate discussions about the solidity of that identity, but to also help analysts build a capacity to listen for the ways in which trauma may have something to do with gender. And that does not necessarily in, invalidate genders, kind of like whatever gender position one comes in with. Um, and in the book, we talk about specifically about intergenerational transmission, um, working with a, a case of a young assigned male at birth child uh, who we call Ori and who I worked with for some time, um, for a b- very brief amount of time, actually more closely with uh, this child's family um, to show how the, the debris of intergenerational transmission is operative in this child's gender, but not to argue that that what it does is spoil his gender, or that it he, it makes him feminine in a way that does not belong to him, but to actually stage a set of arguments that make a very strong claim for how to think about gender as also responding to the external world. And that not being a problem, but in fact, the way that gender has always worked uh, from the beginning of talking about gender in psychoanalysis, whether we had the term through Stoller um, and, and Garfinkel or before, Stoller, when Freud was talking about gender through the the avatars of activity and passivity, psychoanalysis has always been interested in gender and has always been kind of like, and gender has always been soiled. Uh, There is no clear form of gender. It's always been soiled by by the social world. Um, So this aseptic version of gender that is uncontaminated by the social uh, is, is a huge problem that we're trying to push back against.
2: And this even goes back to the earlier question you had asked us, JJ, about, you know, we're, we're pushing against etiology. And one of the things that surprised us actually in, in writing the book, you know, we had ourselves had this view that no one asked the question of etiology with respect to cis, and we'll, we'll use that language, like right? with, with normative genders. The, the The question of etiology only comes up with respect to queer people and trans people. What made them trans? What made them queer? But we and actually in thinking about it and going back to some you know key literature, we're like, oh, actually, psychoanalysis has been interested in how someone became a woman from the very beginning. I mean, whether it's you know Freud's early writing of femininity and describing the much more tricky path of a girl becoming a woman than a boy becoming a man, for example, or Joan Riviere's famous 1929 paper, "Womanliness as a Masquerade," or you know, certainly more recent literature, psychoanalysis has been preoccupied from the very beginning with the vicissitudes of gender. As Avi said, the term gender wasn't available, but that's what's being talked about, the vicissitudes of so-called normative gender. So we're like, oh, we're you know coming to sort of in some sense redescribe our project, which is to give to trans and queer subjects the same dignity of complexity that has long been given to normative subjects where, again, the vicissitudes of, of how they experienced the parental surround, how they responded to social cues. And, and psychoanalysis's interest in that, when it comes to normative subjects, was never then to say, well, then you must not really be straight, or you must not really be a woman, right? So why can't we afford that same curiosity and that same investment in listening, listening carefully and listening for complexity? Why can't we offer that? To the queer and trans people sitting in front of us, too. They also deserve that same resource of complexity.
1: Mm-hmm. So, it, whether it has been about thinking about parental identifications and counter identifications or the Oedipus complex, psychoanalysis has a rich trove historically of thinking about not necessarily how somebody becomes cis. I wouldn't kind of like, I, I don't think that psychoanalysis understands itself as doing that, but certainly in fleshing out. Of, like, why a woman has where her femininity comes from, or fleshing out the the difficulties of becoming, um, of one's re- of a man's relationship to one's castration anxiety or penis. Like, there have always been these conversations of psychoanalysis around cisness, but as Anne was saying, never with an eye towards questioning gender. So, if we have had this extremely nuanced and not always, um, not always sophisticated, but certainly nuanced conversation about how gender develops its density around cis identities, why might we not be able to extend the resource of that complexity also to thinking about queerness and transness? So to the common question of, well, we don't think about that about cis people, why would we think about that about trans people? We actually answer back we, we have been thinking about this, about cis people, and it is a matter of dignity and the dignity, not just of belief, of trusting people's self-identifications, at least in the moment that they articulate them, not as a core identity, but as a self-theorization that is true enough for the subject in the moment, to to be able to sit with that also for, for trans subjects, uh, to be able to think for patients who need to have these conversations and these explorations in the consulting room about how their gender may have been a response to an external event, whether that is an intergenerational transmitted event or a trauma or or episodic, kind of like temporally demarcated traumatic event as for example, a sexual violation or kind of like a parental divorce, like this idea that if your gender shifts rapidly and unexpectedly in relation to something else or contemporaneously with something else that makes your gender unreal and just an effort to to avoid dealing with trauma because the energies get routed towards a new identity our question is when has that not been the case and why are we so frightened and allow ourselves to be moved away from thinking about um, complexity, And this is something that comes up in the work of Hilma Latino as well, and in kind of like the work around trans negativity, which very deeply informs our thinking in this book, so that the ongoing mutations of gender, um, as Paul Preciado talks about, are f- are part of life as opposed to um, the constraining of life.
2: And, you know, Avi just said, you know, why are we so frightened about this? And we do want to say that it's actually frightening. What we're saying is frightening. It's frightening and anxiety-provoking for the people we're sitting in the room with, in part because of the cultural conversation, which insists that if there's any relationship between trauma and transness or trauma and queerness, that transness and that queerness are a symptom of the trauma. And if you address the trauma, you'll correct the symptom. So the person will become straight. The person will be become cis as they always should have been. So this is also goes back even to the ethics of the of this project. We ourselves had to sit with this worry that the argument we're making could be weaponized. We talked extensively with other colleagues in the field, Them, some of them also trans, all, you know, all of us queer, um, trying, you know, thinking about should we make this argument? Can, is it safe to make it? And what we, you know, we were very grateful for that those conversations with our colleagues that we came to think we had to make it because it it felt to us to be accurate moreover not making it wasn't stopping the onslaught of homotransphobia it only it we were seeding the conversation to homotransphobia and we weren't allowing for the complexity that we're actually hearing in the clinic but we did have to get past our own fear and it's also then you know thinking we've seen the relief of people we sit with when we can offer space to them to talk about this pos- these possible connections their and their own anxiety that if they, if they if this is true that there's some relationship that would undermine their transness or queerness and there's the relief that it's a space in which they can say this aloud and wonder about it and be curious about it without the clinician leaping in to say aha or some version of it so i think this is, we, you know, the anxiety, clinicians do have to get over this anxiety. Um, so as to, yeah. again, provide a space for the people we're sitting with and listening to. Um, and we're not, It's I, again, I want to underscore where this anxiety is not just in the minds of the two people in the room. It's coming from somewhere in these violent, violent public debates that have profound consequences. That it's not just ideology. I mean, these are material consequences to the debates unfolding in the socio-political surround right now
1: i want to pick up on on ann's emphasis on how not having these conversations um for those of us who work so extensively with queer and trans people seeds the ground to more conservative ways of understanding um, how trauma may have a share in the in the becoming of gender complexity uh, because the, this there's nothing authentic to gender. There's nothing true to gender. There's nothing it can be measured against or assessed against. Gender just exists in the moment just by virtue of the fact of how it is experienced. And that is a profoundly big claim, which we track in the book very carefully, but also profoundly profoundly big intervention because not being able to talk about the ways in which gender is affected by the outside through the translation of, through the, the taking in of the mythosymbolic codes and then crafting something of one's own, as as Laplanche describes in his notion of translation, is, is, is a tremendous, um, it's like we leave a lot on the table when we don't take that on. Um, and here it's critical to underscore that when we talk about the use of mythosymbolic codes, we're not talking about internalization or introjection. we're not talking about taking the, the codes from the outside and just kind of like swallow them in and then mimetically reproducing them in the way that kind of like the panic around the rapid onset gender dysphoria um, suggests, as if kind of like if you go to the wrong bar or the wrong internet site or hang out with the wrong people, this is panic very prevalent right now, both culturally and in parents then you can get infected with that gender because if you are around those codes, and we see it also in kind of like all of these kind of like legal issues right now around uh, drag queens and kind of like storytelling, kind of like our children exposed to drag queens and is that gonna make pervert their original gender of cisness? Like these all revolve around the same premise that kind of like that the outside enters you kind of like as, as a reproduction, as a facsimile. And this is not what we're talking about. Uh, The Laplanche's notion of the mythosymbolic is about the strange agency that comes with taking what's available in the outside world, not, not from an ego perspective, not from a neoliberal kind of like select your gender kind of angle, but the strange agency that arises from forces within the unconscious that select codes and blend them together idiosyncratically to create something that feels like one's own. And this is why, even though translations and our becomings originate from the outside, they're allocentric, both in the other's intervention and in the fact that we are using the outside to craft ourselves, they come to feel like they're ours because they arise from this particular, in this particular nexus of the external, like the external codes that are not of our making, but then they are made through our own, Kind of like idiosyncratic, their own, uh, there are own idiosyncratic concoctions. And that's what makes them ours. Not that they're true, not that they resonate with some true core, but that they are arising from this strange agency, from this, as Laplanche says, from this perch that the ego does not command. So they are not from the self, but they are of the self.
2: So in that sense, you know, we are pushing it back against the notion of some ontologically true gender. But we're not legislating. You can't describe your gender as true. It's what's true for you. It's like true enough, a goodness of fit. And that fit could change across your lifetime in such a way that you actually start to use even new languages for yourself. Right. And um, and that's OK, too. Like one's one's we could say one's new true gender. Right. Um, We will. We're preserving that. But we again we don't want to fix it in some way that's ontological whether we root ontology again you know through dna or chromosomes or you know through genitalia we 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 are you know wanting to loosen things up a bit and i think this may um i'm thinking about the allocentrism uh, avi was just describing with respect to the becoming of any subject and i suppose there's another allocentrism that we're talking about in this project and to go back to something you, you asked jj we are Wanting psychoanalysis to become allocentric, we are we we want to save psychoanalysis. It must take in and let itself be disassembled by to have its metapsychologies challenged by the insights of intellectual conversations from outside psychoanalysis. Um, we certainly could not have written this book without the resources of trans of color critique, of queer theory. Um, this uh, a feminist theory, this book could not have been written just with the resources of psychoanalysis. We need psychoanalysis to mutate and mutate in response to the contact without with discourses outside of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. And my question is very is very different than just incorporating or being influenced by different ideas. It's really about allowing ideas that come to us from the outside, including Black feminisms, which are another strand of analytic theory, of theorizing that we allow to come into psychoanalysis in this book and really break some things down and some disability um, writings to to come in and really challenge some of our assumptions, not just to change our way of thinking, but to show us that the way that we have been thinking has been extremely constrained. And that is frightening. It's truly frightening because it's it's like the, the metaphor that I usually use when I teach is that it's like having this Jenga tower of blocks. It's like beginning to take blocks from the bottom of the tower. And that means you have to risk the tower c- coming, tumbling down. And I think you know, one of our urgings in this book is to take that risk and to let some things... Collapse because it's only in the not to destroy psychoanalysis, but to destroy that psychoanalysis, so that psychoanalysis can mutate. It cannot mutate on those foundations. So when we, when Anne was talking about kind of like ontology, um, part of what we are putting considerable pressure on in thinking about the category of cisness is also the the presumed the ways in which whiteness and able bodiedness is built into the categories of cisness. So we we use Christina Crosby's work, um, um, kind of like a lesbian, um, um, disabled um, activist and very brilliant author from her memoir who speaks about how after um, a pretty significant accident that compromised her mobility, put her in, in a wheelchair for the rest of her life. She says, after that, I didn't have a gender, I had a wheelchair. Um, so there's kind of like this, this crisscross between gender ability, cisness and whiteness like Marquis Bay's work has also been very influential to us in this volume around, uh, the way that they speak of how whiteness is like in this kind of like uh, the, the unmarked and the unremarked category of cisness rhymes really well with the unremarked territory of whiteness. Um, which we say not in the in the embodied racial way, as if like white people are cis and non-white people are are not cis, but to say that gender and gendering um has always had relations to to race. And I, I wonder, and you speak very beautifully about this when you write about spillers. And I, I wonder yes. if you should go in that yeah.
2: direction. I mean, we we we've certainly found Marquise Bay's work really um crucial here, but um, you know, Hortense spillers you know, early on argued, I think, in 1987, and her a really important piece on uh, Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, that part of the trauma of racialization in the basically through the captivity of the Black body and the transformation of Black subjects into property, so that radical de-subject, desubjectivation, right, the, the stripping of subjectivity from Black subjects to turn them into a different kind of subject as an object of property, also fundamentally involved in these are spill this is spiller's term and ungendering. It's and so that you know black women and black men in some sense didn't get to have property in their gender in the same way because they were the property of others. So that the the result of you know so that a black woman's child would um um became the property of whoever owned her right and to the extent that there's this alienation um um in um of the you know of one's child from oneself their the child turned into property too this it was actually affecting how gender was lived um and so we're really interested in how that ungendering that has to do um that spillers you know relates to again racialization there this lives today in cisness which still has, which gets to be about some of the property of whiteness, like the normative gender in our culture, normative gender ideals do correlate to white beauty ideals, for example. So we're not done with some of what Spiller is describing um, with respect to the enslaved, right? There's a long history of the racialization of normative genders.
1: And, and we see some of that playing out around the really ecstatic panics around white childhood at this particular moment in time, and the ways in which, especially states, it's it's not an accident that states where that are now instituting all kinds of legislative attacks and constraints on medical health care for trans children. And of course, they're now also going after trans adults, as we always anticipated. And nobody should be surprised about that, though, interestingly, psychoanalysts are always surprised that kind of like about their strategies. But in any case, that you see that in those states that go after trans rights are also states that really struggle with critical race theory that are really um, showing tremendous um, um, anxieties and Fears and um, pa- paranoias around racial difference, um, and so if these are this, which is another way of saying that these are allied struggles um, that, like the there are important allegiances that we should be aware of as analysts between anti-racism, about thinking about uh, kind of like decoloniality, thinking about gender, and that these are not peripheral to psychoanalysis. This is not this social turn, as some psychoanalysts are saying, which takes us away from the spirit of psychoanalysis, but it is very much at the epicenter of thinking about how the sexual unconscious leans on forms from the outside world in order to render what is formless into something that takes some form, and that that form If, as we have been saying throughout this conversation, it's not about something originary or authentic or true, then we are always already in the domain of the the interimplication between the social and the clinical. There's just no way around this. So the clinical case that we work with in the book is actually of a child that comes from a pretty conservative, very conservative uh, Jewish background. And we think very much about issues of racialization, Uh, and of religion, another category that psychoanalysis does not think well with um, um, in understanding the complexities of of gender and how all of these are braided together um, rather than being layerings of you have psychic life and then on top of it, you also have considerations of race and considerations of religion and considerations of class. This is a really insufficient way of thinking about the social in psychic life. It is not just a layering atop, but a, a real uh, constitution through in, uh, through um, uh, the social.
2: And again, it doesn't mean we think about, uh, I'll use the language of macro, micro. This doesn't mean that macro level social categories then dictate how any one individual is going to sort of become there and this is this is where psychoanalysis can step in with our our model of the unconscious Though it does matter what model the unconscious we're working with but the unconscious becomes a way of understanding the idiosyncratic ways that any one person might respond to the cultural surround again it's not a flat given this set of cultural myths or this set of cultural stereotypes you know therefore this person will become x right again it's more idiosyncratic but i do want to go back to something that avi was stressing Having to do with these related struggles—anti-racism, um, um, anti-transphobia, you know, anti-homophobia—I mean, this is this has a really thick history. We should all know by now, though I don't know that we sufficiently do—that the language of protecting children is about a particular child, and and actually not just a particular child—a white, normatively embodied child, a Christian child, et cetera—but it's really not about children at all. It's about the figure of the child. But, you know, even to go back, this is, you know, to 1977 and Florida, there's a lot happening in the state of Florida right now where, you know, twinned attacks on so-called critical race theory, which is not being taught in any primary or secondary schools. One would wish it were. It's not being taught there, but it's being banned. The attack on trans kids, on queer kids, right? Let's go back to 1977 in Florida and the famous campaign of Anita Bryant to undo Dade County's um, gay rights ordinance. Basically, Dade County had taken and had added the language of um, sexual orientation. It was going to protect gay and lesbian people from discrimination as well. Anita Bryant helps to lead a campaign to undo that um, county ordinance. But 1977, at the same time Bryant's doing this, in the name of, and the slogan was, Save Our Children, there's also a campaign at exactly the same time in Florida against the use of busing to desegregate public schools and there's also a campaign again exactly the same year 1977 against the ERA and opponents of the ERA were arguing that were the ERA to pass the equal rights amendment to pass it would mandate unisexual bathrooms among the many other outrages that the ERA would perpetrate, would perpetrate would be the um the, you could no longer have um bathrooms segregated by sex right so three things happening at the same time in florida in 1977 all of them also using the language of protecting children in some way, and this is we are still living in that moment, right? And that's isn't just, just 1977. There's a longer history of invocation of children in defense of the most noxious politics, you know, racist policies, for example. But I, I point this out because we we really can't. It it gets in the way of um, our thinking if we believe
1: what's happening now is new. It's renewed. When when Anne talks about the figure of the child, one might wonder, why is that of interest to us as analysts? Like we're actually working with actual children in the consulting room. Like why is this figure of the child of interest to us? And I'm thinking of the critiques coming from queer theory and um trans of color critique. Like I'm thinking of going back to Lee Edelman, who makes a very and, and Jules Gill Peterson, who's been writing kind of like really beautifully and quite uh, strongly about the ways in which the figure of this white, innocent, cis child that has to be protected from the incursions of otherness installs, I would say, in psychoanalysis, a a way of thinking about clinical work that has permeated all clinical writing about children, uh, such that the work of treating children is about restoring their psychic life in this domain of innocence that is both that is stripped of anything that looks non-normative or that looks like a child may be heading or may already be in a direction that does not accord with how we want to see the figure of the child. Um,
2: I just wanted to say, um I those are obviously know, just mentioned some important, you know, resources that we're drawing on and are thinking here, Jules Gil-Peterson's amazing historical book on the histories of the transgender child, for example. I also want to, you know, sort of credit Gillian Frank's work um, on, um, you know, through whom I learned about what was happening in Florida in 1977. Um, Frank is a, an historian of American religion. And I mean, this kind of, this is, again, another resource. Why psychoanalysis has to have other resources than just reading psychoanalysis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are so many different threads
0: to pick up on in the interest of time, you know, sort of maybe bring us to a final set of questions. Something as we sort of wrap up today that I'm thinking about and have been thinking about as both of you are just speaking, um, you know, you both are sort of gesturing towards how this shows up in the clinic, how this shows up in the clinical encounter. Um, You know, I think really importantly, noting the kinds of anxieties that come up both for the the patient and the clinician, which are not sort of reducible to simply counter-transference or transference dynamics, but are actually sort of very real material anxieties. I mean, I'm thinking in particular for the patient right now, when we think about the ways in which clinicians in the medical system operate as kind of gender bureaucrats or as kind of um, border agents of... Gender and proper subjectivity, that there are real material stakes for the ways that a patient talks about themselves within the context of the clinic, the way that they, the way that they theorize themselves, as you sort of frame it in the book, which I think leads me to the final set of questions. So I, you know, unfortunately, the final set of questions, I feel like we could talk all day about this, but I think, you know, I think one, there's sort of dual concepts in the book that I'm sort of thinking about right now, which we could sort of land on, which is, on the one hand, what you call patient affirmation, playing on the dual sense of patient, both as a, um, you know, as a, as, a, as a way of being with someone and a description of a person in the room, um, and then also what you term as self-theorization, in the book which i think is really core and central to how you think about the clinical encounter in the book um and so maybe we could just wrap up with a brief discussion of what what you mean by this what it flags for you um and maybe teasing out the sort of generative tension in that phrase self-theorization which you know i think as you've been talking about it sort of captures or articulates you know how we have to hold in mind that oneself how one conceives of oneself is not simply a sort of rational and coherent narrative or narrativization, but that issues forth from kind of an autonomous enclosed person or subject, but that there are all these forces that sort of act upon us in some ways, but that at the same time, that does not negate the kind of autonomy and authority that the patient, the subject has on themselves, which it's a very, it's a it's a important tension there. So maybe we, you could both speak briefly to those ideas,
1: yeah. And do you wanna jump in or should I? Okay. Um, I'm, I'm glad that you're pointing us to self-theorization because it connects with some of what we we're talking about earlier when talking about translation, how materials from the outside world are used both the other's intervention, uh, into us, the other's incursion, whether it is the intergenerational history that the parent brings to the child or the parent's trauma. Um, no, we have been taught to expect that queer subjects, trans subjects, queer subjects, have dealt with an inordinate amount of trauma or loading from parental inheritances. Um, and what we are arguing is that the, the loading that all of us are subjected to from our parents, which is inevitable, um, is becomes part of a resource for how to theorize oneself, even though, again, that theorization is not the conscious effect of like, I decide to be this, neither is it an an entirely random internalization of this or that trope. Um, And another term that Laplanche uses uh, to underscore that is to say that we all self-mythologize, to underline the ways in which these mythologies of whiteness of cisness or the mythologies of like a, a number of different categories are given to us in kind of like offering themselves in really spectacular ways that we then take up and mix and mingle and and thankfully like undermine on our own to create who who we think we are at any one particular moment and then that's subject to to further breakdown um in in talking about patient affirmation we are indeed arguing um we're, we are arguing that the patient in affirmation has to do with the analyst's patience um with the kinds of countertransferences that arise in the analyst not in the domain of kind of like conscious anxieties, but in the ways in which the analyst finds herself feeling disturbed in the consulting room. And by disturbed, I don't mean like upset, but having her own um, kind of like uh, uh, gender and sexuality being called into question or being um, um, kind of like desires or fantasies or memories arising about the analyst's own body. That may have been dissociated or the the analyst may have not thought about which then get often dealt with with the analyst doubling down and shutting that down by shutting down the patient um, and when we talk about anxieties i think it's also important to remember that there's also parental anxieties uh, and those when you work, when you work with children there is, and parents right now are being so bombarded with these transphobic rhetorics. Um, even we see legislations that argue that are trying to market to parents the notion that their children could um, could regret something 30 years later. So there's, it's almost like there's no shelf life to how long you have to be waiting for to find out that you did your child's gender wrong. And that, of course... Uh, generates tremendous anxieties to parents, about which we're very sympathetic and very um, want to interest analysts in engaging um, in this regard as well. And I do
2: just want to really underscore something to do with the term self-theorization, that this is not neoliberal self-theorization. It's not a drop-down menu for gender or sexuality or race. You know, it's, it's, um, and to use a slightly different language, say, than psychoanalysis, it's a kind of agency and a kind of self that arises out of conditions that we did not get to choose. We're all born into a world um, that we didn't get to choose. We didn't get to choose the, the ways in which race and gender and sexuality require that we be claimed by them in some way and that we take up a relationship to them. But so we didn't get to choose those parameters, but we do get to exercise agency in how we relate to those parameters. And it's not a fully volitional one, right? What shapes our relation to those parameters are things, I will now come back to psychoanalysis, that are not fully in our ken, that are not fully in our consciousness. But it's so it's a strange agency, a queer agency that arises. In relation to a set of constitutive constraints that are not of our own choosing. And agency starts from what we didn't get to choose. And I think this is, you know, I um, you know, both Avi and I are reading, reading widely in other kinds of you know, critical theories. And you know, one of my boyfriends is is Michel Foucault. And I find Foucault very helpful to think about this kind of strange agency. And and I that's just so important because it's in thinking about self-theorization this way. And so what does that mean in the clinic? Again, it's to, to provide maximal space in which our patients can come to have that agency for themselves so that the names they're called by others might be names that they they might change that name, but whatever name can start to feel right for them, right? This is also to say the gender is relational. It does matter how we're seen by others, right? That really has a profound effect on us and it, it shakes us and it shapes us And it's, you know, and we may ask to be called other names or we might lean into the name in certain ways. Right. We're really and self-theorization involves these these leanings and these these unfoldings.
0: That's beautifully put. And, you know, I'm mindful that we're sort of coming up at at time or don't have much time left. But if either of you or both of you just have any any lingering thoughts that you'd like to sort of put out there, by all means,
1: I I do have a thought that I wanted to add, which just just to give like a a very crisp language to some of what we're talking about. One of the things that we are speaking to and want to make the field less afraid of thinking is about how gender involves improvisation and it involves invention rather than a discovery of something that was already there. And what that also means is that it, um, it is embroiled in processes of experimentation. So the ways in which we sometimes treat trans and queer subjects as if they have to come into the consulting room and make a compelling sense of their, a compelling case for their gender if the analyst is going to stand behind it, misses the fact that patients also come to us with experimentations and the work of analysis is to see if these experimentations can hold and to help patients defend their processes of experimentation, which may Open up to a variety of different outcomes, including outcomes that, kind of like, are unexpected for the patient or for us. So we were talking earlier so much about cisness and transness and the critique of cisness. Like one of the differences between a self-theorization that lands in cisness, uh, as opposed to one that lands in, say, transness or non-binary gender, is that we welcome the autonomy of the first, but not of the second.
0: Mm. Well as good a place to land as any you know I feel like we could again talk infinitely about this, but thank you both for your time and again, I think beautiful to end on a way in a way instead of thinking about experimentation, generativity. Um, you know I think it's so important. And again, thank you for your time. thank you for the book and I wish you both well. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you JJ.